0: A-M-E-N The Alpha Male Entertainment Network Broadcasting from Humidor 1A In the Cigar City of Tampa, Florida U-S-A Welcome
1: You have found the right place for Alpha Male Refuge. There are no enemies of pleasure to be found. There will be no nagging for the next two hours. You are free to enjoy a cigar without excessive taxation or nagation. I sound like George W. Bush, I just made up a word, nagation. Well, so is lightation, but we've used it successfully. For 20-some-odd years, not going to change now. You want to have a libation? Feel free. Steak on the grill? Real steak made from real cow, not from a test tube. And believe me, the enemies of pleasure, the enemies of meat, they want all your meat soon to either be vegan style or from a test tube. We'll get to that. But you have come to the right place, so enjoy Long Ash, greetings and salutations. A Long Ash snappy salute. Semper delictatio. Always pleasure. Long live the Alpha. Make America great again. Make masculinity great again. Screw the enemies of pleasure. Your global five-star general and Alpha Male-in-Chief, front and center from Command Center Alpha in the Cigar City, along with... One of my canine security detail companions, it is Pendragon's Royal Baron who is very comfortable chewing on one of his real meat bones. Well, I shouldn't say real meat. it's a it's a nyla bone, but I do take some meat after putting a nice steak on the grill little juice and I pour it into a little bowl and I let that bone just sit and seep it all up. So he enjoys the fine taste of real authentic. Meet As always, make sure you follow me on social media. Go to CigarDave.com, upper right-hand corner, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. There is also a new social media site that we are going, we have already joined, we haven't posted anything. It's similar to Twitter. It's a Twitter alternative, but it is not censored. There is no sort of throttling your traffic, and we will get to that uh Probably next week we'll start posting on there as well. We're going to start hearing more and more about it, so we will get to that. We hear the term toxic masculinity. We hear it all the time. Oh, toxic men. Last week we did our 75th commemoration of D-Day show. Received many great compliments. I appreciate the fine compliments, the emails, social media. We're very proud of that show, least we could do. During World War II, were the 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old boys and men, as they were storming the beaches, as they were retaking Europe, reclaiming it from the Nazis, from Italy, from Japan, were they toxic masculinity males? Was it toxic masculinity when they were in hand-to-hand combat, when they were up to it? being shot at with mortars, bullets, wading through water, wading through the blood of their fallen comrades. Was that toxic masculinity? Were they displaying toxic masculinity as they were defending freedom, defending the free world? I think not. But yet we hear toxic masculinity over and over and over again. Men are evil. Men are terrible. Well, I found it very interesting a few weeks ago. Meryl Streep, who I would not exactly equate with being a libertarian or a conservative, to the opposite. Big dem, big lib. That's fine. She was at a session hosted by Vanity Fair Talking about the upcoming season of her television show Big Little Lies, in which Streep is a cast member. Here's what she had to say about toxic masculinity.
2: Half of the women in America who are in the half of the people in law school in America are women, half more than half in medical school. We're making incursions in business. We're coming up from the bottom. It's just that upper echelon. We haven't broken through.
1: Well, I don't believe that. There have been plenty of women that have broken through, and Meryl Streep is 100% right. More women are college graduates today than men. More women are getting post-secondary degrees than men. When we look at men the way they've been portrayed over the last 20, 25, 30 years on television, movies, men are the dumb oafs. As soon as they come home from work, they hand their paycheck before there was direct deposit. They handed their paycheck to their wives. Why? Because men were too stupid to balance a checkbook. Men couldn't be trusted with money. That was the overall picture of how men were portrayed as dumb oafs. Was it comedy? Sure. Entertainment? Sure. But there was a modicum of truth underlying how they portrayed men. So Meryl Streep doesn't agree with the term toxic masculinity. And she is right. We are hurting our boys. We are hurting our young adults, young adult males, and adult males. Because adult males learn when they are young, when they are boys. And in school, if teachers push them aside, don't spend the same time as with girls. Don't encourage them to use their minds. Don't instill confidence. If parents don't instill confidence, if a boy sees his father being whipped around by the wife, by the mother wearing the pants in the family, how is he going to end up as an adult? Meryl Streep is right on the money. And there are more and more females that are saying, we've got to end this toxic masculinity nonsense because to assume that every man from the time or every male from the time they come out of the womb is a sexual predator waiting to happen is nonsense. It's false, and it is extremely harmful to the future males. I cannot tell you the number of women, female friends of mine, on a regular basis, that tell me, Dave, where can I meet men like you that are alpha males, that are decisive? I am tired of going out on date after date with wussified beta males, men that cannot make a decision. Men that can't even make a decision on where to go to a restaurant. So think about this. If a woman, you call a woman to go out and you can't even decide where to take her for dinner, how on earth are you going to wear the pants and make bigger decisions, life's decisions? The answer is you can't and you won't. That is why we see a plethora of women that are married to Wussified betas many of them extremely displeased. They want a strong, decisive man. They want a man that grabs the bull by the horns and say, I'm going to pick you up at seven o'clock. We are going to go to this restaurant. I've got a reservation at 7.30. And then afterwards, we're going to have a cocktail at this particular jazz lounge. Do you think a woman is going to fight you, maybe 1% women will say, oh, I can make it myself, I can do that. Those are the women you want to hit the eject button on. Because most women, almost every single woman I know, craves, desires, fantasizes about a strong, decisive alpha male. And they are the first to say this toxic masculinity mantra is toxic in and of itself. Now we hear toxic masculinity all the time. I'm going to give you examples of toxic femininity because we have to call it out when it's there. This comes from Indian Harbor Beach, Florida. A Florida woman allegedly grabbed her boyfriend's testicles, his nads, and squeezed so hard that he bled had to go to the hospital. Katie Lee Pitchford, 21, was arrested June 4th after a confrontation with her living boyfriend escalated, according to the Indian Harbor Beach Police Department. This enraged woman allegedly hit her boyfriend with a brush. She continued to strike him with her fists and scratched him, drawing blood on the left side of his face, according to the arrest affidavit. The victim also stated the defendant grabbed him by his, and I'm quoting here, this is what was in the police report, grabbed him by his balls and squeezed them until they were bleeding. Ouch! I'm hunched over in pain right now. I'm looking at a picture of this lovely lady. She then uh, proceeded to grab her boyfriend by the throat, choke him until he couldn't breathe. The man struggled before getting away and calling police. The woman, admitted the two were arguing, told police nothing physical happened. After she was arrested, Pitchford asked if she could talk to the victim because she wanted to say she was sorry. Uh-huh. She was sorry for grabbing his sack and squeezing so hard. We know how painful that could be. Scratching him, being violent. She was also, oh, but wait, there's more. She was also charged with violating her probation from a 2017 arrest in which she hit a law enforcement officer. So this 21-year-old woman, Katie Lee Pitchford, sounds like a real prize, a real beauty, a real keeper. Said no one. Toxic femininity. Have we heard much about that? The answer is no. Because the narrative from all these feminist groups is. Toxic masculinity. Men are evil. Men are the cause of all women's problems. Men are the root cause of everything in the world. How many times do we hear, oh, if women only rule the world, if women only ran this, and women did this? Guess what? Women do run the world in many situations, many cases. Women leaders, women CEOs. I would venture to say a majority of women run the household these days. Why? the extinction of the alpha male. But it gets better. As Paul Harvey would say, page two. This comes to us from my hometown, Buffalo, New York. A 73-year-old man from Hamburg, New York, a southern suburb of Buffalo, was on a computer in his kitchen last two years ago when his wife accused him of defiling her name to a friend. At that point, his three daughters attacked. These three daughters attacked their father. One daughter choked him from behind, forced him to the ground, stole $1,100 from his pocket. The other two joined in, kicked and punched him, according to the Erie County District Attorney. The latest incidents of abuse for Michael Pietro Carlo over a period of 17 years He was emotionally abused, repeatedly beaten by the women in the house, the mother and the three daughters, real buttes, sometimes being attacked in the middle of the night. He was also forbidden from sleeping in his bed with his wife, was told to sleep on a couch in the kitchen, where he was isolated behind a curtain. He slept in his clothes every night for 15 or 17 years, according to the district attorney, so he could get up every night after he got beaten around and go sleep in his car. The three children who lived in the home, three daughters, routinely, emotionally, physically, mentally made his life a living hell. They terrorized him since 2002. Well, the three sisters, 41-year-old Elisa Pietrocarlo, 31-year-old Grace Pietrocarlo, 23-year-old Annabelle Pietrocarlo, each found guilty of second-degree assault against their father following a three-day trial in state Supreme Court. The mother, Christine Pietrocarlo, found not guilty. Three daughters, three women, perfect case of extreme toxic femininity. We hear about toxic masculinity. Now we're going to start to hear about toxic femininity. There's a hashtag, me too. Whenever women say, oh, I was uh, abused, I I was hit on, casting couch, hashtag me too. Now we should have a hashtag, men too. Whenever a man is physically abused, because it does happen, when a man is in the workplace, is berated, or is taken advantage of by a female superior, female boss, that should be called out. It's always women that are the victims, and there's no question that society tilts towards the women. What do we always hear? Never hit a woman. I got news for you. If this woman was attacking me, the woman, this Katie Lee Pitchford, who was grabbing my nadsack, if I did nothing and all of a sudden got enraged and flew into a, a violent uh, a rage, grabbed my nadsack and started squeezing, do you think I wouldn't take a shot? And whacker, you better believe it. That is called self-defense. And that is 100% permissible in my estimation. If you are attacked, I don't care if it's a man, woman, red, black, yellow, checked. I could care less. If you are attacked, you have an absolute right to defend yourself. If a woman came up to me on the street, some nutcase, and started saying, I don't like you, General, grab grabbed my NADSAC or slug me, you don't think I'd slug him back? You're damn right I would. So this nonsense, never would hit a woman? No, we'd never hit a woman to initiate. But to defend ourselves, you're damn right. And this is why I always tell men, all my friends, and pay very close attention to those of you that are single men, if you ever decide to break up with your girlfriend, with a woman, never, ever do it in the privacy of your own home. Always do it in a public place. Do it at a Starbucks. Do it at a Panera Bread. Do it in a hotel lobby. Do it in a restaurant. Do it at a Dunkin' Donuts. Do it in an airport. But never do it where you are in the privacy of your own home, even in your own office. Why? All all a woman must do is accuse you of being physical with her, never mind if you didn't do it, never mind if you're 100% innocent. All she has to do in most states, municipalities, is say, he hit me. At which point the police are obligated to, they can investigate, but 99.9% of the time, you're the one that's going to be arrested. We have seen it numerous times. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. As the alpha male in chief, I'm here to protect you, to give you words of wisdom. If you are going to break up, if you're going to ask your wife for a divorce, whatever the case is, always do it in a public place. And never, after you break up, never allow her back into your home or your apartment. Never, if she says, let me just come back to talk or get my things, never it. If she does, do not answer the door. Refuse to answer the door. If she says, I need to get my stuff now, you say, I will bring all of your belongings to you. If she tells you, well, there are things you don't know where they are, you say, fine. I will make arrangements to have some female friends or an off-duty police officer there to collect your valuables. If you have to take a video camera while you're collecting everything as you put it in a box, do that. But don't ever allow a woman you have broken up with back into your home. Ever. You're asking for big trouble. You will. It will cost you a bundle. I read a story a number of years ago about a... Man and woman, they were dating. They broke up. She was living with him. Not full-time, but had some clothes, other things. He basically said to her, We're done. This isn't going the way I want it to. I want to break up. She went into a violent rage. Guess who ended up getting arrested? She called the police saying he was the one that initiated. So what happens? Not only... Does he get kicked out of his house? Not only does he get taken to the clink, to the big house for a night, cost him a bundle for an attorney, had to post bail. And oh, by the way, she got a restraining order and he couldn't even live in his own house. I I read this and I'm shocked. I can't remember where I saw it, probably about 10 plus years ago. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, you've got to be kidding. This isn't justice. Men are getting screwed. Perfect example, toxic femininity. I provide all this information to you because as the alpha male in chief, the global alpha male in chief, as a leader who is trying to de-wussify the American and actually the global male, it is a rampant epidemic. Men are wussified. A majority of men today are wussified, that is a fact. Those of us that are alpha males, we are in the minority. In fact, we're almost in the extinction category. We're on the endangered species list. The good news is, together, we will increase the amount, the number of alpha males that are out there so that we don't become a wussified beta male society. And it is already happening. And I provide this information to you so that if you ever get into a situation, where a woman grabs your NADSAC. First of all, you should defend yourself. I never advocate ever hitting a woman. What I do advocate is defending yourself. If a woman has a gun pointed at you, or threatens you, or is going to rob you, whatever the case, you have the absolute right to defend yourself. That's a different category. But I provide this information to you, so if something somewhere along the line you find yourself in a situation where you're experiencing the rages of toxic femininity, where a girl that you are dating, a wife that you are married to, all of a sudden becomes a major nag zone, starts to go psycho. You need to make a change in that department. You need to hit the eject button. And when you hit the eject button, do it properly. Think it through. Never do it at your home. Always at a private place. And once you hit the eject button, do not ever... Ever let her back in your company, in private, ever again, or in your home, in your office. Always public. Someday, you will thank me. There will come a time you will say, I remember what the alpha male-in-chief, Zagar Dave the General, said. The man was prescient and correct.
0: The Cigar Dave Officers Club selection this month is the Balmoral Añejo Exo Connecticut. This cigar provides a creamy experience that embraces your palate with complex notes of vanilla, toasted caramel, and white pepper. The finish is smooth with underlying natural sweetness. Want these cigars shipped directly to you each month? Log on to CigarDave.com to join the Officers Club.
3: Quality is a matter of family honor.
4: Surgeon General Warning. Tobacco use increases the risk of infertility, stillbirth, and low birth weight.
0: unlimited and secure supply of pleasure sticks available for the general to enjoy
1: it's time for national cigar
0: litation maneuvers
1: on this Father's Day weekend I will dedicate today's cigar to all the fathers that are out there and I will be remembering my father dr. Z the Surgeon General of the Alpha Army tomorrow I will uh, raise a glass to him in his memory And to all the other fathers out there that are no longer with us, I'm sure you will all do the exact same thing. I pulled out a cigar that was launched just about a year ago at the Cigar Retailers Convention, the IPCPR convention in Las Vegas. Hard to believe, but the IPCPR, the International Premium Cigar and Pipe Retailers Convention has been moved up this year It occurs uh, just over two weeks earlier this year. It starts the end of June. And once again, we will be providing exclusive video coverage, in-booth video coverage from the IPCPR convention show floor, Monday, July 1st, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time, three-hour time difference. We've got a number of booths that we will be visiting Gurkha, Davidoff, Drew Estate, Alec Bradley, Lars Tettens will do a retailer roundtable with some key influential retailers across the country. I do my normal walkthrough where I scan the entire show floor, give you a taste of the IPCPR convention. And I will also be doing an in-booth segment from CAO because they have one release coming out that will be available year-round, and they have, I think, two... Limited edition releases coming out later in the year. So my good buddy, Rick Rodriguez, Rico Suave, said, General, I got some things I want to show you. You got to stop by, and we will. And one of the cigars that he launched last year as the uh, master blender, brand ambassador for CAO, is the CAO Nicaragua. Beautiful stick, absolutely smooth, medium-flavored, Hamastron Nicaraguan wrapper. The binder on this particular cigar, also from Jamestran, and actually I should say the wrapper and binder are from Honduras, my mistake. Jamestran, Honduran. The filler, Nicaragua, but three different regions. Esteli, Jalapa, Condega. So you get some sweetness, some spiciness, some richness. Rick Rodriguez blended this cigar, beautiful stick. Suggested retail in this cigar is seven bucks. It is a fabulous cigar, very, very smooth, very t- notes of sweetness, notes of a little bit of pepper, a little bit of spice, but just a very nice balanced cigar, almost a little vanilla on the taste as well. Very, very pleasant cigar, it comes in three sizes. The Granada, which is a Toro, six by 50. The Matagalpa, a Corona five and a half by 46. And the Tipitapa, a robust. i got to say that again, a Tipitapa, a Robusto 4.8 inches by 50. I've pulled out the Corona size. Now my favorite size is a, the Toro, but my second favorite is the Corona. So I've got the Corona in my hand. Here's what I like about the Corona. When I'm visiting cigar manufacturers, I always like to sample the blends in a Corona size. Nice way to evaluate the overall taste, and that's what most master blenders use, is the Corona size. That's gonna give you a nice representation for the larger ring gauges as well as the smaller ring gauges. It's a wonderful cigar to walk the dog if you wanna have a 30 minute, 35 minute cigar. Perfect size, just a very traditional size. Good old-fashioned Corona. Five and a half by 46. The Matagalpa suggested retail, as I said, in the $7 category. CAO Nicaragua, my cigar of choice today for libation.
0: Cigar altering and highly sharpened leaf-exposing device.
1: I have my self-sharpening double-edged stainless guillotine in my right hand that I will take with me to the cigar retailer's convention in Vegas. Although, if I forget it, it won't be a problem. Because I know there's umpteen different accoutrement manufacturers. All I have to do is stop by and say, Gents, I need a few litation devices and a few cutters. And their response is, General, pick whatever you need. But I always come prepared.
0: Maximum BTU flame-throwing and heat-producing apparatus.
1: This is a brand-new litation device from the Cigar Dave R&D Laboratories, the guys that wear the white coats lab coats with the pocket protector they are geeky very nerdy they sit there 24 7 365 thinking of better ways that i may conduct lightation and they gave me this new lighter they don't even know what to call it i think i'm going to call this the cube because it is a perfectly square lightation device four jet flames in a square pattern listen to that and just a unique side toggle switch These guys are always coming out with stuff, and they said, but wait, General, there's also a built in cutting device. There is a built in piercer on the bottom that releases. I don't know how they fit all this stuff in on this particular, what I'm going to call the cube, but they did. That's what I will use today for Lightation.
0: Cigar Cigar pre Lightation checklist complete. No faults detected. Area clear of all enemies of pleasure. Approval to go throttle up in three,
1: two, one. Here it comes. Very nice. Although I did make somewhat of a mess on the cut. Let me get rid of this. You must have a clean workspace. I do not want any mess around my very long wing-shaped desk, glass wing-shaped desk. I'll now, toast the foot of the CAO Nicaragua. And again, I love the three names that they came up with for these particular cigars. The Granada for the Toro, the Tippitapa for the Robusto, and the Matagalpa for the Corona. I'm taking my time, I'm in the rush. Savor it. Enjoy it. Live it. Breathe it. As I pop and rotate. Very nice draw. Nice flavors right off the bat. Hmm. Very nice. Ah, as I blow on the foot of this cigar, it needs just a little more lightation. Mm. Very nice. Take a few puffs here, get it nice and warm. And right off the bat, definitely noting uh, some intensity from the wrapper and binder. A little spiciness, some pepper, but uh, definitely getting some nice notes. Very subtle sweetness, almost a vanilla-like sweetness. Very pleasant. Very nice. Seven bucks cannot go wrong. And for our exclusive cigar retailers convention a coverage that begins Monday, July 1st. Just for the day, Monday, July 1st, starting 1 p.m. Eastern time, we have a special page at CigarDave.com. And also... Download the Cigar Dave mobile app because we will have our videos as we do the in in booth uh, live videos. We will have those that will stream not only at CigarDave.com and on our YouTube channel, but also on the Cigar Dave mobile app. Whether you've got an iPad, an Android device, no problem; iPhone, no problem. Go to the respective App Store, download, do a search for Cigar Dave, download that app because you never know when we may do some unannounced podcasts or something that grabs me, we're going to start doing more and more of those. If something hits me or there's some item I'd like to share, we'll do a podcast just like we did last Thursday. What we did was we did the D-Day show on D-Day, and I told Sergeant Steve, I don't want to wait till Saturday to air this show across our network. Let's, as a bonus for all of those of our alphas that listen to us and have the Cigar Day mobile app downloaded. Let's give them a little bonus. And at nine o'clock Eastern time, last Thursday on D-Day, we aired the show. You got it before anywhere else, anybody else. So go and download the Cigar Day mobile app right now.
0: Scotch, bourbon, and beer. Commence thirst quenching libationary maneuvers.
1: Well, this is a very special spirit. It's a perfect summer spirit a new super premium American whiskey from, uh, used to be Jim Beam, now it's called Beam Suntory. It is called the Basil Hayden Caribbean Reserve Rye. A blend of eight-year-old Kentucky straight rye whiskey, four-year-old Canadian rye whiskey that's been finished with the addition of black strap rum to add some sweet notes to the final taste profile. Now, I'm usually not one that... Wants to have rum with whiskey, but I got a sample of this, tried it, actually liked it. Now, would this be my everyday particular bourbon or whiskey? The answer is no. But for today in the summer, sure, I'm going to take a little sip and I'm going to enjoy it. And it's a nice accompaniment to my CAO, Nicaragua. As I swirl it around, I should tell you that a 750 milliliter bottle, 45 bucks, not too bad. Hmm. Very nice aroma. Actually, I'm getting a little bit of that rum, golden honey color. The aroma, almost some brown sugar. Mm, definitely some of that rye, almost a caramel like. All right, let me say cheers. That's it. Mm, nice balance. Definitely get that rye in there, some woodiness, and a little bit of sweetness. A lot of warmth. On the CDWF, the Cigar Day, the Warm Factor Exclusive, CDWF. Mm, it's about a 9.15. Very nice. As I take another sip. And again, raise a glass to all the fathers and to the memory of my father, Dr. Z, Surgeon General of the Alpha Army. All right, when we come back, next hour, I want to tell you before we come back, next hour, we've got a very three special guests. Last week, when we were conducting D-Day broadcast maneuvers from the American Victory ship in Port Tampa, World War II vintage era ship, I had the good fortune, as I came up on deck, of meeting three great veterans. The first two are veterans of World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, Jim Powell and O'Neill Descham. The third. A Vietnam veteran, Gary Gilchrist, who also doubles duty on the board of directors and very active with the Honor Guard of Tampa Bay. I had a chance to sit down and speak with them all. It was an impromptu interview, but I think you're going to find it very interesting. Three great Americans, patriotic Americans that have served this country. We're going to talk about the honor flights, how those work. Just incredible when you see those veterans going and coming back from a day trip or two-day trip to Washington. Really is amazing. And to talk with Jim Powell and O'Neill Descharmes, two a World War II Korea and Vietnam veterans. Fascinating. And the stories they had, and they are sharp. They're in their early 90s, sharper than a tech. So we will speak to them in the next hour. and we come back, we'll tell you about what's going on in the People's Republic of Beverly Hills, California.
5: Prohibition is back in California and soon coming to a city and state near you.
6: Let's tell the government we've had enough. Join now cigarrights.org. The Cigar Dave Officers Club has been bringing you
1: fantastic cigars every month for the last 15 plus years. The streak continues. The June 2019 Officers Club selection features the Balmoral Anejo Exo Connecticut, a delicious cigar crowned with a shade grown wrapper from the Connecticut River Valley. The Balmoral Anejo Exo Connecticut. Provides a luxuriously creamy experience, nice notes of vanilla, toasted caramel, a little bit of pepper, a nice, smooth, natural sweetness to the Balmoral and Yeho Exo Connecticut. To become a member of the Cigar Dave Officers Club and get great cigars such as the Balmoral and Yeho Exo Connecticut, it's very simple. Go to CigarDave.com, click on Officers Club, and for $22.95 per month, you will get three exquisite cigars shipped directly to you. Join the Cigar Dave Officers Club and experience great cigars such as the Balmoral Añejo XO Connecticut.
0: The General has just illuminated the No Pleasure Police sign. Enemies of pleasure may now return to their miserable lives.
1: Beverly Hills, People Republic of California. Now I love Beverly Hills. Rodeo Drive, Cannon Drive, the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. Great places to go. Used to be great places to enjoy cigars. But Beverly Hills, extremely restrictive. The first city in the People's Republic of California to ban smoking inside restaurants, most public places, including outdoor venues. I went to go have a cigar. I was at the Beverly Wilshire a number of years ago. Went to go smoke a cigar outside on the patio, I'm right by the sidewalk. Nope. Went to go light up. Guy says, I hate to say this because I love cigars. He goes, no smoking. I said, what? I'm outside. Can't do it against the law. The most stringent smoking ban in the country. And it has gotten now even worse. As the city council voted unanimously to enact the most stringent tobacco ban in the country, eliminating the sale of all tobacco products. Cigars, cigarettes, pipe tobacco, snuff, vaping. Materials, vaping, tobacco, I don't know what you call it, vaping, tobacco, whatever. That's the big rage, vaping. Gone. Out. The good news is there was a massive show of support, vociferous display of support, by cigar connoisseurs saying there should be an exemption carved out for the three cigar bars in Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills is not a big city, not a big town, not a big municipality. Very, very small. But there are three cigar bars. Probably the most well-known is the Grand Havana Room. Movie stars, executives, business people, movers and shakers. see many people there. It's a great place. Very, uh, nobody bothers anybody. You go in there, there's movie stars, nobody's asking for autographs. You're allowed to go in, smoke a cigar, nobody is bothering you. It is by membership only. It's a great club. Been there. Very nice. Way to go one of the most vociferous of those people, stating that he supported the tobacco ban, the sale of tobacco, but felt there should be a carve-out exemption for the Grand Havana Room and
5: two other cigar bars in the city. Arnold Schwarzenegger, he said, I am right there with you. I agree with your battle to protect people from the dangers of tobacco smoke and from my bad movies. I trust that the city will recognize the fundamental difference between clubs like the Grand Havana Room and the gas station selling nicotine products for e-cigarettes. Well, guess what, Arnold? That is called outright prohibition. I don't care if it is a Circle K, a 7-Eleven, a gas station, or the Grand Havana Room. The sale of tobacco products should be allowed it should be it is legal everywhere else in the country and now what's going to happen thanks to your support Arnold you're going to see this spread throughout the entire country it's going to happen it starts in California and like a bad cockroach and one of my bad terminator movies it keeps growing and growing and growing to New York to Alaska to Hawaii to Florida We're not Florida, That's the cigar state. Not going to happen.
1: The point being, this is a very, very dangerous, slippery slope. We have gone from de facto prohibition, Hawaii, trying to enact an age ban where, you first of all, they went from 18 to 21. Then they said they wanted to raise it to 25 and 35. Then within five or six years, it goes to 100. That's de facto prohibition. Forget de facto prohibition. The enemies of pleasure, the enemies of cigars, the enemies of freedom, the enemies of personal choice are now going, they're right out in the open, outright prohibition. Started off with a smoking ban just in restaurants and buildings, they said. And then after a few years, outdoor patios. Then after a few years, parks and sidewalks and golf courses, Then they said, we need to raise the smoking age. Why, 18-year-olds aren't smart enough to make that decision. Yet, they're smart enough to vote according to these same people at the age of 16. And we hear all these people that say, raise the tobacco age to 21. Let's outright prohibit it. These are the same people saying, well, a woman has the right to choose what she does with her body. And my answer is yes. I believe in personal choice and personal freedom. I don't want to be told what to do. I don't tell women what to do. Don't tell me what to do. So they're the same people saying, we have to have women's freedom of choice. Fine. I have the freedom of choice to enjoy a tobacco product, to smoke and enjoy and buy a cigar. There is no fundamental difference. I have heard it ad infinitum over the last two weeks, since many of these states had decided to have extremely restrictive bans on abortion. and My feeling is, we don't need any more laws. Enough's enough. I don't care whether you're pro-choice, anti, whatever, pro-life, whatever. My feeling is this, stay out of my life, stay out of my body, stay out of my bedroom. Stay out of my humidor. Stay out of my liquor cabinet. The same people jumping up and down saying, we have got to end this. This is this we cannot have people buying tobacco products at the age of 18. They're not smart enough. Oh, but wait. They're smart enough to vote at 16 and they're smart enough to make their own personal choices on their bodies. Well, if it's good enough for women, it's good enough for men. I'm sorry, but outright prohibition is not going to work. It didn't work when it was enacted. Back in the tw- early part of the 20th century, it is not going to work today. And mark my words, I have said this. Even those of you that don't smoke cigars, and I know we have a ton of you that listen, that say, look, General, I don't smoke cigars, but I like you talking about steaks. I like you talking about freedom. I like you talking about spirits, the alpha male good life. I like your just overall outlook. Even if you don't smoke cigars, you better buckle your seatbelt. Because they are going, these enemies of pleasure, the prohibitionists, when they're done with cigars, they're coming after the caffeine in your coffee. They're coming after your meat. We're already seeing it coming after your straw and your paper plates and your plastic bags. And plastic uh, plastic plates. This isn't going to just stop at cigars. Very dangerous. Once you get into the prohibition business, it doesn't end. They're going to prohibit pizza. They're going to prohibit steak. They're going to prohibit your cigars. You're damn right they are. It needs to end. Outright prohibition. If we don't all fight it right now, we are all screwed, and even those of you that don't smoke cigars. Hour 2 of the Cigar Dave Show is next. This
0: this is AMEN, the Alpha Male Entertainment Network.
1: Last week, I had the privilege and pleasure of presenting our D-Day 75th Anniversary Commemorative Show. We went through a timeline of D-Day, paid tribute to our great boys and men that fought valiantly at Bloody Omaha. We talked about World War II in general. We conducted broadcast maneuvers for the 75th anniversary D-Day program from the American Victory Ship, a World War II ship built in I think, 55 days out in California. Incredible. As I boarded the ship on deck, I had the opportunity to meet three great patriotic Americans. O'Neil Descharmes, Jim Powell, World War II Korea Vietnam veterans, and Gary Gilchrist, a Vietnam veteran that runs the Honor Flight program in the Tampa Bay area. And I had a chance to speak with them I know you will enjoy my conversation with them as much as I enjoyed it as well. The General Front and Center, we have moved the Ford Theater of Operations Command Center Alpha to the Gunners' Quarters on the American Victory Ship, a historic ship. This ship was built in 55 days by CalShip just outside of Los Angeles to uh, 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 support the troops overseas with cargo and supplies initially it sailed for the invasion of Japan never happened as we know made a cross-Pacific voyage to Europe to help rebuild Europe after World War II and it now has a permanent home here in Tampa and what an honor and privilege to be on this historic ship and an honor and a privilege to have uh, three great Americans first of all from left to right I've got Jim Powell a World War II Korea Vietnam veteran We've got O'Neill Ducharme, a World War II Korean Vietnam veteran as well. And to my right, Gary Gilchrist, who is a Vietnam veteran. He is on the Board of Directors of Honor Flights in the Tampa Bay area. And we are going to speak with all of them. And first of all, let me give you all a long ash, snappy salute for all your service as we record this on D-Day, June 6, 2019, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And let me start with you, Jim. First of all, uh, where are you from? I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. I lived in Baltimore for three years. good friend of mine, Charlie Eckman, who is a big referee and broadcaster in, in Baltimore, showed me around. Love the crab cakes. That's, that's what I miss. It,
2: everything in Maryland, Chesapeake Bay.
1: That, you got that. And I can tell by the Baltimore accent. And it's not Baltimore, right? It's Baltimore. Whatever. So, Jim, tell me about yourself, uh, a three-war veteran. And you're recently retired. You, you were still going at it up until, uh, what, about eight, nine years ago? Well,
2: I'm an I eighth-grade dropout, we put it that way. And things weren't good during the war, and so I got an opportunity to go to merchant ships at the end of the war for the door-to-door race through 46. So I sailed uh, all around the world, you know, and did a lot of self-study, got a marine engineer's license, sailed on one license, and then I went in the Navy in 56. The Navy gave me a commission with eighth-grade education, and couldn't read and write my name. No training, no basic training, nothing. Give me a commission and a set of orders. So I used the word I survived. And
1: what were the orders initially?
2: I went to a ship, a PA, which is a Victory Hall, just like this. Okay. Which were, that was in my realm. I was a marine engineer on Victory ships, so
1: it was right in the engine room in the Navy ship. And my understanding is that when they need to take this uh, ship, the American Victory ship, out, that uh, they rely on you now and then to get down in that engine room. Not too much anymore. <laughs> but, but you're there of counsel if they need yeah, it. Yeah.
2: When they first started out, I'm a licensed engineer, but they didn't have anybody thing to fire the thing. So they knew that from my experience that I've been a fireman and everything else, so I wound up being a fireman instead of an engineer, which a job's a job.
1: You got it, exactly. So and
2: the local union's got all the engineers they need, so they come down and that So, so. Uh, and, and I continued my license till 2010, and with all the other engineers I, under the Coast Guard, it costs about $500 to renew it, so I give it up.
1: And uh, how many years between the Merchant Marine and the uh, the Arm- uh, the Navy, how many years did you serve?
2: Well, on the merchant ships, I continued on and off work all the way through 2010. I went in the Navy. Went active duty in, in 56 and retired in 76.
1: Okay, gotcha. So uh, almost 40 years between both uh, until you finally retired.
2: Well, oh, yeah. Uh, well, actually, on you know, the Merchants, were longer than that, but it don't make a difference. But, you know, I, I was active, not sailing the ships, but active like relief engineer and on this ship here,
1: too. Yeah. So you sailed the world? I did five tr- complete trips around the world. That is incredible, and O'Neill Ducharme, let me bring you in. You are initially from the great state of Maine, a little bit north of uh, Portland, and little fact, before we get into your service, you had a very famous neighbor in Cape Elizabeth, Maine, not too far from Portland.
7: Yes, sir. I think her name was Betty Davis. It's pretty well known at the time. Yeah, pretty. uh, She lived up on Cape Elizabeth on Route 77. I lived half a mile of the road from her, and... uh, she was a great neighbor. She lived there for about four years.
1: and She didn't take it with you to, to
7: Hollywood? Uh, no, I'm still waiting for an invitation to her house. <laughs> <laughs> <You know. laughs>
1: so. O'Neill, so tell us about your service, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam veteran.
7: Well, I, uh, I joined the uh, Marine Corps right after Pearl Harbor, signed a four-year contract, and... Uh, I had a few more months to go to graduate from high school, so they sent me to finish, which I did. After I finished high school, I rushed down to the recruiting office tell them, I'm ready. They says go back. We can't send you to Paris Island for another three weeks. We haven't got a room. I said, no room. So two weeks later, they called me and I went up to Augusta, Maine, took a physical. Supposed to come home for three days, then I wound up in the MSC South Carolina, for Paris Island, for recruit training. Spent twelve weeks there, and then to Camp Lejeune for eleven for reclassification. From there, I was reclassified with this semi-security rating and went to Washington D.C. at Marine Barracks, and uh, I spent. Uh, full two years there, six months at Marine Barracks, and six months at Shangri-La. Shangri-La being Camp David today. With That's right. Pre- President's retreat up in the Kentucky, Kentucky Mountains, Mountains right. 70 miles north of Washington. And uh, after that, we changed commandant naturally. And he says, there are two kinds of Marines, those overseas. And those that are going to join him, I said to myself <laughs> <laughs> i got a, I got a nice plush job here. I'm not <laughs> going to be taken so the next morning I found out I was packing my my trunk, put it on the truck and to Pendleton, California, I wound up five days later formed the uh, thirty to relief group to resupply the regiments and the divisions of the Marine Corps in the Pacific, and uh, went uh, down to San Diego for another five days and got aboard one of the brand-new merchant ships that had been built, the 3S, and we had 3,300 troops and no escort, and we uh, took a trip down to Guadalcanal, which was way after the battle, of course, Joined the 1st Provisional Brigade, which later became a 6th Marine Division. And from there, we went into Okinawa for three months and six days from April Fool's Day of 1945 and also Easter Sunday and uh, landed on Okinawa. And we thought that the Navy made a mistake. Uh, Where were the Japanese? Nothing to be seen. So we set up barbecues, softballs, we played ball, <laughs> we had barbecues, and boy, after 72 hours, we found out we were on the right island because they were all anchored down in bunkers, and 129,000 of them. Wow. We had 128,000, so it's not even matching. Right. Know. <laughs> we figure, give or take, So, but uh, at the end of the... Uh, 87 full days of battle with 19 kamikaze, which is the Japanese there in the 1100th century declared that the divine wind, which means kamikaze, suicide, got it with 1900 of them in 87 days, trying to sink our ships. And then after that, I went to New Zealand for a stay and then back to Guam. To reform for the invasion for September first to come, which never came and uh, August noon time Japanese time we call outside to listen to a broadcast from Arito to emperor of Japan saying that we have capitulated we have surrendered and uh, unconditionally so the next day we boarded ship and sail for Tokyo Bay. We sail off Tokyo Bay for eight days. And then we finally, on the midnight, on the 30th of August, we get to, were to go in slowly. If you got cameras, you use them, take pictures of the bay for installation. There'll be white flags here and there. Throughout Tokyo Bay, uh, they made a mistake. Tokyo Bay from North us south was pure white, so we would have been into a great battle and we uh gone ashore at six fifty two and in the morning at eight o'clock we took down the Japanese flag and put the American flag. I was the one with the third battalion and foot Marine Regiment of seven hundred and fifty that went ashore that day as a an occupier of Japan in three thousand years, and then after the surrender of Japan, I stayed in Japan till September of, uh, I mean February of nineteen forty-two. Upon coming home, I uh, took a discharge, went down to recruiting office, joined the active reserves. And got reactivated for Korea, Vietnam, and I gave him a little bit of my time, about 39 and a half years.
1: 39 and a half years in the service total. right. Incredible.
7: And then the best thing that happened to me, I married a World War II veteran. My wife, a nurse apprentice from Quantico, Virginia, Naval Hospital. And after chasing her for one year, finally caught her. And married her, and she kept me for 69 and a half
1: years. Wow, 69 and a half years. Yes, that is incredible. Yes, and, uh,
7: <laughs> then she passed away, and we were both going as veterans on the, on the flight. And then we went to Washington, and the big bus for me and the big blow came. The reception we received at the airport when we came home, it picked me to cloud nine. I have never come down. And right then and there, I said, my future is dedicated on the Flight.
1: Fantastic. And that brings us in uh, from O'Neill to Gary Gilchrist, Vietnam veteran, who is on the board of directors of Honor Flights for Tampa Bay. Gary, Honor Flights, it, it ceases to amaze me. I've been at airports when our veterans are either leaving or coming back, and the reception they get from Americans of all ages is overwhelming. And to see the veterans... Uh, the smiles on their faces, it's almost overwhelming for them. It is. It is. Uh,
8: For those people that are unfamiliar with Honor Flight, it's a nationwide program. It's 501C3, and we're in 46 states. There's about 120-plus hubs or chapters. We here in the Tampa Bay area are responsible for a 10-county area of jurisdiction. We've been in existence since uh, 2010 and we've uh, flown almost 2,800 veterans out of the Tampa Bay area to Washington. And the nice thing about it is there's no charge to the veterans. We're, uh, we're quite active. In fact, coincidentally, we have a flight uh, this coming Tuesday out of uh, Clearwater, and then we have two scheduled in the fall. We have 600 on the waiting list. Now, most of those are Vietnam veterans. World War II and Korea veterans have priority Simply because of their age, so we're going to be around a while financially. Uh, we're in great shape, and uh, the program is run run very well. And I've been on the board of directors and really enjoy it. And these two gentlemen that we've got here uh, are really the center of attention. They participate in the program and they know what it's like from the veteran standpoint.
1: Well, just the way O'Neill described it, being on cloud nine ever since then. Uh, that's a, it's it's just great to hear and the. Response and the reception, not only from Americans but also corporate America, that has really risen to the occasion and support the airlines, travel companies, private companies. They've really backed this 100%. They have.
8: Costs us about 68,000 to run a flight from uh, Tampa, uh, Clearwater actually, to uh, Washington and back. Most of that is airline expense. The guardian that accompanies the veteran, every veteran gets a guardian whether they want one or not. They're asked to donate 400. If you multiply that out, uh, we take about 70 veterans, 70 guardians, 70 times 400. Covers about half the cost of our flight, and the rest is through private donations, fundraisers, and corporate contributions. So uh, the Tampa Bay area has been very, very supportive,
1: and uh, we're very excited about the program. So think about this the people that volunteer to accompany the veterans. They pay $400 to go, and I would bet you've got a lineup of people on a waiting list that want to do it and participate.
8: We do, and it's surprising the number of return guardians that we we get. Uh, there's one fellow that I recognize has been on six flights as a guardian. That's maybe a little bit unusual, but multiple um, returns for guardians is not too uncommon. We're very happy uh, from one standpoint 97 cents out of every dollar revenue that we take in goes back into supporting the mission. And as I jokingly say, the other three cents goes for postage. We have no paid employees. We're all uh,
1: volunteers. Fantastic. The honor flights are normally one day. They go in the morning, return in the evening.
8: Generally, uh, honor flights that are west of the Mississippi will overnight because of the distance. And east of the Mississippi, generally up and back in one day uh... we probably come one of the furthest distances east of the mississippi going to washington but it is a long day they have to be at the airport at four o'clock in the morning and uh, get up in washington we put them on buses feed them and then fly back to uh... clearwater st petersburg and we get back about eight eight thirty at night to uh... a welcome home that many probably don't anticipate is going to happen so it's pretty emotional for a lot of these veterans and um, and the families are there and friends and neighbors, so it's not unusual we'll have three, 400 people there to welcome them home. And many of them never had a welcome home.
1: And I've got to believe that the crews, the pilots, the flight attendants, the ground crews, that's got to be a highlight for them as well. It
8: is. In fact, uh, the airline that we fly with, they ask for volunteers to uh, be the crew for, uh, for our honor flights. So that uh, is kind of
1: warming, too. But they really enjoy that. And what is a day like uh, when they leave here? They arrive in Washington probably early morning, early to mid morning. World War II veterans, give us what a day on an honor flight to Washington would be like.
8: Once we uh, get into Baltimore, Washington, we put them on buses and we go into uh, Washington D.C. The first stop is at the Air Force Memorial. We spend about an hour and we have lunch there. Overlooks Arlington. We do not drive into Arlington. Then we get back on the bus and we go to the Lincoln, Korea, and Vietnam memorials, spend about an hour and a half there, get back on the bus, and then we go to the World War II memorial and spend uh, about an hour plus there, take a group picture, and uh, it's not unusual to have three or four honor flights in from other parts of the country at the same time. We're all uh, identifiable because we have uh, certain colored shirts. Guardians are one color, veterans are another. And uh, we take wheelchairs for every veteran, whether they want it or not. Sometimes by 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, they're starting to slow up a little bit, which is understandable. Get back on the bus, and away we go back to Baltimore, Washington, and fly home, get home about 8 o'clock.
1: Jim Powell, O'Neill Ducharme, World War II Korea Vietnam Vets, our guest, Gary Gilchrist, Vietnam Vet. Let me ask Jim, what's the thing you miss most about being in the military?
2: (laughs) Actually, I enjoyed it. If I had a little more English, I would have never got out of the Navy. You know,
1: but what what was there? Was it the camaraderie, the travel? I mean, look, you 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 were in obviously it, some it, battle, it's, but it's a whole different thing from merchant ships. On well, a merchant ship, you're out here, you're
2: on your own. In the navy, there's more camaraderie, you know, and and actually, in the merchant, you only get paid when you're gone. Right. And I'm fortunate. I'm in the navy five years, and only waiting home seven months, so
1: it it was good. And, O'Neill, you signed up for reserve duty, so there was something, obviously, you enjoyed about the military. Well,
7: let me tell you. My father was a World War One veteran, a Canadian, of course. I'm a first-generation Amer- first American. I had five brothers, four of us in the Marine Corps and two in the Navy. My wife was a Navy veteran. Her two brothers are veterans. That's 11, they're just from World War II to Korea. And I uh, became a Marine, believe it or not, at nine years old. I was sitting on the porch watching this gentleman come down. And then, then I had a next door neighbor and came and put, and I said to him, What is that? He said, The young man, that's a United States Marine. The thought was embedded in my mind, it stayed there. So I became a Marine. Thank God the Marine Corps accepted me. Let's put it that way. So I stayed in from 1942, and I took my final discharge in 1985.
1: So 43 years. Well, yeah, but I had... Three broken years. And, okay. Uh, yeah. Well, we'll give you credit for that. How's right. that? We'll just oh, round. Oh, thank we'll, you. We'll round it up. I mean, yeah, World right. War II vet, Korea vet, Vietnam vet. We're going to round it up to 43 okay. years. Well, that's
7: good. I'll take the three years of pain now. We'll,
1: we'll make a call to President <laughs> Trump. We'll get that taken okay. care of for right. you.
8: Say, Cigar Dave. Uh, uh. Done.
1: We'll get it squared away. We'll get it taken care of. Good. Well, I really appreciate appreciate all of you sharing your stories. Gary sharing the honor flight mission with our our alphas and our audience and it is an honor for me to be able to speak to all of you, and especially on this 75th anniversary of D-Day, I will give you all a snappy salute one more time, and thank you for your service. Jim Powell, O'Neill Ducharme, World War II Korea-Vietnam veterans, Gary Gilchrist, Vietnam veteran, and on the board of directors of the Honor Flights of Tampa Bay. Gentlemen, we appreciate it, and it has been a delight coming to you from the American Victory Ship right here where it uh, really when you think about this ship and you think about when it was built in 55 days, the history here, it just uh, it breathes of World War II and American greatness. So it is an honor for me to have spoken to all of you today on D-Day.
0: The General is always on Twitter, delivering breaking news, giving you the latest intel on cigars, and battling the enemies of pleasure. Chat with the General now at Cigar Dave Show.
6: 100%
0: USDA-certified alpha male, with zero trace of lucification. It's the General
1: Cigar, Cigar Dave. Dave. Last week during the D-Day 75th anniversary commemorative show, We talked about the amphibious assault on the beaches of Normandy, specifically Omaha Beach, also known as Bloody Omaha, where the Americans landed, and immediately, as soon as their Higgins boats, the door to their Higgins boats opened up, they were under attack from the Nazis along the Allied wall, bullets flying all over the place, mortar fire, That's why they called it Bloody Omaha. In fact, many of the first waves were killed immediately as soon as those Higgins boats' doors dropped. And I didn't have a chance to talk about the importance and significance of the Higgins boats. The United States would not have won World War II, I believe, and neither did General Dwight D. Eisenhower, without the Higgins boats. And I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about the significance. I didn't get a chance to do it last week, because we had so much to get to in that limited two hours that we had planned. But in order to win the war, the United States, the allied countries, they had to develop tactics and equipment to launch that massive amphibious landing along the beaches of Normandy. Amphibious attacks, amphibious landings in and of itself, inherently dangerous. There had never been an amphibious assault landing as large of a scale as the amphibious landing at Normandy back on June 6, 1944. Not only in the European theater of operations, but there were Pacific atolls to and uh, in, in along the Pacific theater of operations that they needed to get from the water onto land. There's a very unique contribution made to the war effort by one man... One industry, one company, and one city. The man, Andrew Jackson Higgins. The company, Higgins Industries. The city, New Orleans. New Orleans' home to Higgins Industry, which was a very small boat company owned by flamboyant entrepreneur Andrew Jackson Higgins. He designed and produced a unique and ingenious collection of of amphibious boats capable of delivering massive numbers of troops and equipment safely and efficiently from ship to shore, eliminating the need to establish a harbor. Most amphibious landings, you got to have a har- harbor, you've got to have some sort of dock. He totally eliminated that with his LCVP craft, land Landcraft Vehicle Personnel Craft, designed to carry infantry platoons and jeeps to shore. Higgins' boats were used in every major American amphibious operation in the European and Pacific theaters, crucial to the success of those operations. And it's a very interesting backstory. There's always these backstories. We look at D-Day. We talked about weather was a backstory. But Andrew Jackson Higgins had this great idea, and he went to the Army and said, you're going to need these boats. You're going to need a Carrier, a personnel carrier, to take personnel, equipment, you're going to need a unique boat. But he had difficulty getting the attention of the military. They scoffed at him. But he was persistent, created a superior product. He was competing with the established shipyards of the Northeast. His designs won him huge government contracts, and his very small business grew exponentially rapidly. In 1938, he had a single boatyard employing less than 75 workers. Five years later, he had seven plants employing more than 25,000 workers. Another interesting factoid. The Higgins workforce was the first in New Orleans to be racially integrated. He had whites, blacks, men, women, seniors, He had people with disabilities. He had everybody working there. Didn't care. They were all paid equal wages according to their job functions. How did they all respond? They shattered production records. They turned out 20,000 boats by the end of the war. More than 12,500 were the LCVPs, the Landcraft Vehicle Personnel Boats. And he was so he had such incredible belief in his LCVP concept that he had to buy wood because he knew there would be a shortage of wood, so he had to buy wood. I Can't remember where he bought it from. Somewhere, I don't know if it was the Pacific Northwest or somewhere overseas. He bought all the wood he could to make these boats. He risked it all. He said, I'm gonna take the risk. Built these boats. The army said, that's what we have to have. And during the war, the Higgins name became indelibly tied to his LCVP landing craft. Men didn't come ashore saying, hey, I'm going to board that LCVP. They traveled on the Higgins boats. He achieved, he just received numerous accolades. But the one he received from General Eisenhower, probably the biggest and the best. Eisenhower said about Higgins, he won the war for us. It's a pretty big accolade. There is a replica Higgins LCV uh, LCVP boat in its New Orleans, Louisiana Memorial Pavilion. The Higgins boat was built from original plans entirely by volunteers, several of whom worked for Higgins Industries during World War II. If you have never been to the National World War II Museum in New Orleans, it's on Magazine Street, very just blocks from the New Orleans Convention Center, not far at all from the Mississippi River, very close to the big uh, New Orleans Hilton Hotel, not far from within walking distance from the from the French Quarter or the Canal District. Absolutely, you must visit. I spent an entire day at the World War II Museum. I want to say it was back uh, oh at least seven, eight years ago when I was in New Orleans for the Cigar Retailers Convention. And I can tell you it was a day that left an indelible impression upon me. Incredible. Their multimedia show experience that lasts about 20, 30 minutes. It's not a movie. It's unlike anything you will ever experience. It was narrated at the time by Tom Hanks, blown away. The chairs vibrated. There was smoke, the noise. You felt like you were in the middle of World War II. Everybody that left that particular theater, and it was packed, I think it holds maybe a couple hundred people, said, by far the best multimedia experience they have ever experienced. There were kids, there were adults, there were seniors, there were teens, college students, everyone left with an appreciation of what took place in World War II, with an appreciation for the great men and women that served this country in World War II, for the sacrifices made in World War II, and for what it took to actually win World War II. And a number of college students were saying, geez, I didn't realize that, I didn't know that, that's fascinating. Change them. Do yourself a favor. If your travels ever take you to New Orleans, or you decide, you know, I'm going to be in the South, take a trip, bring your kids, go to the National World War II Museum. It started as the National D-Day Museum, and after a number of years changed to the National World War II Museum. Takes up a number of city blocks worth every second. Completely fascinating Just a little story. The Higgins boats changed the war. There would not have been, I believe, a successful D Day amphibious landing on the beaches of Normandy. We wouldn't have had a 75th D Day commemoration show if it were not for the great men who stormed the beaches, the great men, women of all racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds that built the Higgins boats and the airplanes and the ammunition needed on that day and in that war would not have happened. And of course, the great Higgins boats. So just fascinating. Wanted to share that with you. Divine intervention. The last two weeks, I believe, has played a huge prominent place in the world of sports, specifically horse racing. During the Preakness, there was a horse named War of Will. World War II was a war of will. It was a war of I believe greatness of resolute decisiveness that the United States and the allies were going to do what it took to win to forever change the world. War of will won the Preakness and last week on the third leg of the Triple Crown, no Triple Crown winner, but nonetheless a very exciting race at the 2019 Belmont Stakes in Elmont, New York. The longest of all three races of the Triple Crown, and it was very appropriate that a horse by the name of Sir Winston won two days after the 75th anniversary commemorating D-Day. Here is the end of the race call of the Belmont Stakes.
4: Less than six furlongs remain in this Belmont Stakes, and it's been jovia all the way so far. Tax continues to pursue him as they race for the far turn. And then it's spin-off on the outside. At the rail, ever fast. War of Will, outside of horses, yet to be given his cue. He's four lengths behind with a half mile to go. Meanwhile, Jose Ortiz is starting to ask more from Tacitus. And Sir Winston has slipped through an opening on the inside as they make their way around the far turn. Still Jovia, still Tax. And on their outside, it's spin-off. And War of Will is moving now. And so too is Tacitus. It's very wide. And Sir Winston is right in contention behind horses as they make their way to the top of the stretch. And they're into the stretch. And it is Jovia and Tex. Sir Winston comes up on the outside. And he got in front of War of Will. And Sir Winston has moved to the center of the track under Joel Rosario to take the lead. On the inside, Jovia fights on. Tacitus is there. And then Tex between horses. Master Fencer on the far out side. They're coming to the finish, and Sir Winston has won the Belmont Stakes. And then it was Tacitus second, followed by Jovia third. It's a photo for fourth. The final time was 2 minutes, 28.30 seconds.
1: Tacitus was the favorite, going off at 5-2. to two. Sir Winston kind of in the middle of the pack of all 10 horses, going off at 7-1. to one. Paid out to win, 22-40, to place, 6.10 to show. Beautiful. How appropriate. Divine intervention, Sir Winston, on the 75th, two days after the 75th anniversary of D-Day, Sir Winston, named after the great Sir Winston Churchill, wins the Belmont Stakes. How appropriate. The final. And concluding segment of this edition of The Cigar Dave Show comes your way next. The
0: General is now on Instagram.
1: Follow him for pictures of the latest cigars,
0: libations, and what he's enjoying during the show. (laughs) That could be interesting, and we'll have to block out some faces. Go to Instagram and search Cigar Cigar Dave. Dave.
6: Hi, this is Rocky Patel. I'm here with my brother Nish and my cousin Nimish, and we're talking cigars. Guess what? They want me to vote on what my favorite cigar is. It's tough, but I'm gonna go with the Decade. I love it. It's rich, decadent, and smooth. Rocky, you know what? The Decade's a great
0: cigar, but the 15th anniversary, that's the cigar. That's celebrated your 15 years in business, and I gotta tell you, it's my favorite.
6: You know what, Nish and Rocky, you both are wrong. The best cigar is Freedom by Rocky Patel. This cigar delivers a lot of spice, a lot of flavor, and in my opinion, it's the best cigar we make. As usual, we can't agree. But guess what? There's a great cigar for everyone. I promise you, nobody works harder than we do to make you a great quality cigar. Come visit us at rockypatel.com.
4: Surgeon General warning cigars are not a safe alternative to cigarettes.
1: The Cigar Dave Officers Club has been bringing you fantastic cigars every month for the last 15 plus years. The streak continues. The June 2019 Officers Club selection features the Balmoral Anejo Exo Connecticut, a delicious cigar crowned. With a shade grown wrapper from the Connecticut River Valley. The Balmoral Anejo Exo Connecticut provides a luxuriously creamy experience, nice notes of vanilla, toasted caramel, a little bit of pepper, a nice smooth natural sweetness to the Balmoral Anejo Exo Connecticut. To become a member of the Cigar Dave Officers Club and get great cigars such as the Balmoral Anejo Exo Connecticut, it's very simple. Go to CigarDave.com, click on Officers Club, and for twenty two ninety five per month, you will get three exquisite cigars shipped directly to you. Join the Cigar Dave Officers Club and experience great cigars such as the Balmoral Añejo Exo Connecticut.
0: America's alpha male with nads of steel. The General Cigar Dave.
1: As a reminder, the International Premium Cigar and Pipe Retailers Convention comes our way the end of June, early July, two weeks earlier this year. Our exclusive Cigar Dave convention floor coverage will take place Monday, July 1st, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 p.m. Pacific Time. Correction. 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time. We'll be stopping in the Gurkha booth. Davidoff, CAO, Drew Estates, uh, Alec Bradley, Lars Tettens. We'll do a walk-through of the entire show floor. Retail roundtable. I'll stop at the Padrone uh, booth. We've got a number of other manufacturers that we will see. Be sure to go to CigarDave.com. And also, if you have not downloaded the Cigar Dave mobile app, be sure that you do it. Why? because we will have our video coverage on the Cigar Day mobile app as well, so please be sure to do so. Now, President Trump, a couple of days ago, during an interview with George Stefano Place, gave a sneak preview of the new livery scheme for Air Force One. Now, the current Air Force One scheme has been around since the 1960s, and, It's got that powder blue. It's very elegant, very stately, but I like President Trump's idea to create a red, white, and blue paint scheme. Now, I think many people figured that President Trump was going to be way over the top. It's gonna have a giant flag draped across the the new 747-800, the big top 747, as they call it. Nothing could be further from the truth. Now, he did show he had the plans in his hands, and I was able to take a screenshot and blow it up. It's very elegant. Reminds me of the U.S. Airways livery scheme just before they merged with American Airlines, where it had the white on top and there was the blue. And now they had a blue tail on U.S. Air with a kind of a a very modern looking flag, a very different than what President Trump has suggested. But The new 747 will have white on the top, United States of America in blue, Navy blue in the same type of lettering currently on uh, on Air Force One. It'll have a large red stripe mid-fuselage. There'll be another smaller white stripe, and then the belly of the plane will be in blue. There will be a large United States flag on the tail, larger than what is on now on a white tail. The engine... Casings will be in white. Now, I would like to see the engine casings. I think there you could go with a little more color. I'd like to see maybe blue with a red and white stripe elegantly on there, but very elegant. As soon as it was announced and President Trump spilled the beans, of course, the Democrats... Had to come out and say we need to review this, plus President Trump is making some modifications. By the way, they're going to be spending over a billion dollars less after President Trump negotiated with Boeing to get a better deal. And now all of a sudden the Democrats in Congress are saying, Well, we need whoa, not so fast. We need to check this. You're making modifications. We need to make sure this is done right. Now, had President Obama designed the same paint scheme, guaranteed the Libstream media, all the Dems in Congress, all the acolytes would say they'd be praising President Obama incessantly as a president with a unique eye for impeccable design that captured the essence, grandeur, and stateliness of America. If Obama did that, it's essence capturing the essence, grandeur, and stateliness. President Trump, we need to review it. it, it it's changing a tradition The plane looks very sharp, looks very elegant. It is stately, elegant, looks like a vision of grandeur, as a 747-800 Big Top should. Speaking of Boeing, Boeing for the second straight month has reported zero, let me repeat that, zero new plane orders. Not a one, not for a 777, not for a 787 Dreamliner, not for a 737 NG or the 737 Max. Gee, I wonder why. Wow. And by the way, total net orders for 2019, a very meager 15. That is pretty anemic. And when the 737 Max does come back in, they are going to face a huge amount of resistance from the traveling public. A poll was conducted amongst business travelers and business travel agency. I think a whopping 70 80% said they would not put their passengers on a 737 MAX, and they knew that their clients would want to avoid a 737 MAX. And I would tell you, I will never get on a 737 MAX. It is an inherently unstable aircraft. I had a 737 captain that ringed me out saying, He's flown all the 737s and the 737 Max. I didn't know what I was talking about. I had to stick to cigars. You know what drives me absolutely bat bonkers is when people say, I only talk about cigars or just stick to what I know. I'm pretty damn smart. I'm pretty damn successful. I know politics. I know business. I know investments. I know finance. I'm not a one-trick pony, a one-trick general. So don't damn insult me by telling me stick to what I know. I also happen to be a private pilot, and I'll guarantee you I know more about the aviation business than this particular 737 captain did. I don't care if he's been 50 years flying airplanes. I'll be happy to debate him on aircraft and flying. He may know about more about flying the 737, but what I can tell you is the 737 MAX is an inherently unstable aircraft, thus the need to put that garbage MCAS system on there. So if you want to debate me, I'm not going to mention this guy's name i could embarrass him, but if he wants to come on, you want to send me another email, CigarDave at CigarDave.com, and you want to come on the air and debate me, let's have at it. I'll bury you into the frickin' ground. End of discussion. Uh, one thing I want to get to. Tomorrow, the women will play another uh, – the, the World Cup begins in France. There is a player on the women's team, Megan Rapinoe, Outright lesbian. Gee, by looking at her, I'd never know. Lesbian, 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 as Alan Shore of Boston Legal would say. Openly gay, which is fine. Have no problem with it. She was the first white athlete to kneel uh, during the national anthem to to support former NFL quarterback um, Colin Kaepernick. Well, she has stated that as an FU to President Donald Trump, she would probably never sing the National Anthem again before a game. She will never put her hand over her heart, and she'll probably, as she said, never sing the National Anthem again. And cameras caught her in Tuesday's game uh, against Thailand, standing stoically silent as her teammates put their hands on their hearts. She says, I feel like it's kind of defiance in and of itself to be who I am and wear the jersey and represent it. No, you're not going to put your hand over your heart you're not representing the president. You're representing our country. You want to be openly gay? And you'll look at, sweetheart. Believe me, you'll look at. Do what you want. But don't disrespect the country. Never wish an injury on a person, but for her, I'll make the exception. Cigar David General say, Mayor Humidor, always be full. Mayor Cutter, always be sharp. Mayor Ashby, extra, extra long. Semper delectatio always pleasure. Screw the enemies of pleasure. And screw the enemies of America.